Good morning. Good morning. Move that. So we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis, chapter and chapter three. Uh, so we're going to read from that in a second, verses eight through ten. But before we read, I just want to invite you into just a moment of silence to prepare yourself with all of your faith and with all your doubt for the possibility that God might speak to you through the witness of scripture this morning. So I just invite you into a moment of silence. Listen now for the word of the Lord. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy God, of all the places that we've been this week, we're here now, seeking a word that only you can speak. Be gracious to us as we listen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are a few weeks into Lent now. And as I mentioned, we're, we're using this text along our way as we journey to the cross. And this is the text where Adam and Eve disobey God's command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that tree that was, God had placed in the center of the garden. And we've entitled this series Disordered Loves. It's a really light season, as you can tell. Uh, disordered love is a way of trying to describe how sin works. It's the mechanics of, of, of sin. What is, what is it? Moral psychology. And uh, disordered love is a way of us to kind of say that sin is not mostly a function of our will, of uh, failing to do the things that we know uh, that we should be doing. So failing to do what we know to be right. But sinfulness is a function of our desire, that we love the wrong thing or we love the right thing in the wrong way. We can trace this understanding of sin back to the fourth century, to St. Augustine. And Augustine's got this great line at the end of his confessions, which I think makes this clear. He says, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. In other words, our love carries us around in the world. It attracts us to certain things and to certain objects, to certain people. And it's our love that generates our choices. We're not just, we don't just will things. We love things. Human beings are just big bundles of love. That's what we are, and that's what Augustine thinks. And one of the things that Augustine helps us see is that our love is aimed at something. A particular vision, a particular story that we live, a particular story of what it really means to be human. And we get this story from Genesis 1 and 2, right? I mean, here we find that we are created and we're blessed by God to be in relationship to God and to other people for connection. This is, this is why we're here. This is the whole thing. Right? Any story 
that's, that, that uh, is, is not about connection, about us in relationship to God and each other, is a rival story. Which is why this moment in Genesis 3 is such an important moment in this drama of Scripture. Not only in the drama of Scripture, but in the drama of our lives, because it's the moment that a rival story is introduced. Shaped by the serpent's lie that who we are fundamentally can be changed by reaching for something other than that which we're given by God, our creator. And so this morning, I just want to draw attention to how the serpent is able to introduce this rival story and what happens when we believe it and how God responds to us when we do. So how does the serpent like introduce this? What is, what is the way that the serpent does this? Well, the setup to this story uh, is in the account of creation from Genesis 2, uh, where we find that after God created Adam and Eve, that they were both naked. They were literally exposed to one another is, is how um, it's worded. And yet without shame. I mean, this is a beautiful moment that we get to, we get to see where two human beings are completely vulnerable to each other and yet without shame. And I think it's this moment that's key to understanding how the serpent, who we're told is, is more crafty than any other animal that God has created. How the serpent tempts Eve into taking this fruit and thereby introducing this rival story. So notice what the serpent says to Eve, right? You will not die. Instead, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. It's very, very subtle. Right? It's very crafty. But listen for what the serpent is saying to her. You are a human with limitations. Who you are is not enough. You could be so much more. Take and eat this and be like God. The serpent doesn't just tempt Eve. I think the serpent actually shames Eve. Who you are is not enough. There's, nothing, there's something wrong with you. If God really loved you, God wouldn't have made you with these limits. I mean, do you hear the rival story about what it means to be human? Suddenly what God has created, what God has blessed, what God has declared good and worthy to be in relationship to God and other people is suddenly labeled as not good enough. It's a rival story. Brene Brown, who some of you I'm sure are familiar with, she's got like the most popular, one of the most popular TED Talks um, out there. Uh, she's been researching shame for like, I don't know, her whole career, which if I were doing that, I would want to have like good friends, like a good community, because that just seems like a really hard thing to do. Like Monday morning, shame. Tuesday morning, shame, right? So she's been researching this for a really long time. And uh, she says that shame is fundamentally the fear of disconnection. It's the fear of disconnection. Remember, the particular story told about human beings in Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of connection, that God has created us for connection with God and with one another. This is like why we're here. Shame disrupts this story by introducing the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we haven't lived up to, makes us unworthy of connection. Here's how Brown defines shame. It's the intensely painful experience or feeling of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And here's the thing about shame. It's like the emotional version of Voldemort, right? Please tell me some of you have read this book. 
It's like the greatest story, second greatest story um, ever told. <laughs> Sorry. Right? Shame, shame derives its power by being unspeakable. I know some of you are like, I can't even believe you just said that name. It, it thrives on secrecy. This is how shame works. So Garrison Keller once said that we all have a backstage view of our lives. This is the view that we, we have and we carry around with us. We only let the audience see the neatly arranged stage, the rehearsed production. But behind the curtain lies all of our failures, um, uh, our faults, and of course, our shame. We keep that behind the curtain. We don't want anyone to see that. We think that we're, we're actually protecting ourselves. But in reality, we're locking ourselves in. Shame derives its power from its secrecy. Brown suggests that the most dangerous thing to do after a shaming experience is to hide or bury your story. When we bury our story, the shame metastasizes. It grows, it grows, and the disconnection that it fosters intensifies, which takes us back to Genesis 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Shamed, they go into hiding. And in hiding, the shame only intensifies. And after covering themselves up to hide their own vulnerability from each other, they hide from God, too afraid to be seen. I mean, we know what this is like, right? I mean, none of us, when we've been shamed or feel ashamed, want to, like, see or talk to anyone, much less like a holy God, a holy God who has created us. But believing this rival story that who we are is not enough almost always leads us away from one another almost always leads us away from each other and from God. And yet the more we hide from it, the less we can talk about it, the more control it has over our lives. Here's the other thing about shame. We all have it. Uh, in her research, Brown suggests that, that the only people who don't have shame are sociopaths. Um, so those are your options. Like, I either, I'm a sociopath or I have shame, right? Like, those are the, the if you have the ability to be in emotional uh, relationship with another person, like, you're going to have shame. That's where it lives. Um, and, and so this is not just a story uh, that happened, right? Genesis 3 is not just a story that happened. It's a story that happens to each of us and in each of our lives. We experience it differently because of our different histories, different experiences that we've had, but we all live with it. We all have some voice in our head telling us that who we are is not enough. What we do is not enough to make us worthy for connection with God and with others. Shame lives in the very familiar parts of our lives, right? In our body image, in our appearance, in our um, parenting, in our marriages, in our money, and in our work. And of course, in our religion, Shame is all kind of lurking there. For those of you thinking, though, that, you know, think you're overstating the case here. Like, shame can also be good. It can be a good tool, right? Like, um, <laughs> I have toddlers. No, uh, I mean, so it can, be a good, it can be a good corrective tool. Maybe if we shame someone for doing a thing that they've done, maybe next time when they're going to make a decision, they won't, they won't do it. Like, that's... That's like not really borne out in the research, I'll just say that. Uh, that Brown suggests that when we're shamed, that what happens 
is that we're most likely to protect ourselves by blaming something or someone else or uh, disingenuously kind of apologizing for it, rationalizing it, or hiding out. Shame never leads us to transformation. Right? It never leads us to transformation. It just drives us further and further away from people, away from God, into the darkness, right, where it just kind of continues to grow. Which is why I think this next part of the story is so, like, beautiful, right? Notice God's response to Adam and Eve is not, how could you? Which would, like, God would have every right to, 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 to ask that. Like, guys, it was just one rule. <laughs> you know, it's like, you had one job. Um, God doesn't say, how could you? But God asks, where are you? I miss you. We had this thing. We'd go on walks in the evening breeze. And I miss you. Where are you? It's an incredible moment, I think, which bears witness to this truth. Whatever the source of our shame, right? And we all live with it. Whatever the source of our shame, it's not God. God doesn't shame us. Instead, God comes looking for us when we are hiding because of our shame and calls us out into the light. And there's lots of ways that we hide, right? I mean, remember shame is the sphere of disconnection. This idea that somehow we're unworthy of connection makes it pretty easy to see why many of us spend most of our lives overmanaging our children's lives, working too many hours, or hiding, right, behind these devices, you know, in plain sight. The fear of disconnection is, is much lower here. So we hide. But hiding from God and one another is not what we were created for. It's a rival story. Sooner or later, you will hear this question in your own life. Where are you? God asks each of us at different times and at different places, where are you? And it's not a question which is meant to shame us, right? Where are you? It's where are you? It's an invitation to come and to be with God once again. For those of you who are really close, close readers, who you're looking at you know, the text and you're like, I, just, I'm, I think maybe John didn't read ahead. Um, like, there's more to this story. Um, like, I'm not sure if he knows the consequences lurking behind. I did read ahead, just so you know. Um, and of course, there are consequences for living outside the limits God places on creation, right? In the next couple of verses, God will ask them to give an account. What, what have you done? And while there's consequences for our choices, right? Hear this. Nothing we can possibly do could make us unworthy of relationship with God and others. No matter the consequences that we have to face, nothing can make us unworthy. So while Adam and Eve will soon have to abandon the garden, they will never be abandoned by God. I mean, this is the gospel lurking in this text. We will never be abandoned by God either. The invitation offered to Adam and Eve is offered to us as well. Where are you? This is like the perfect Lenten question. Where are you? Lent slows us down. It kind of brings us all together out of our shame collectively to speak honestly about who we are, the limits on our lives, 
to wonder whether or not we're living from a story that begins in shame or original blessing. Lent's like the perfect opportunity for us to stop hiding. Which, by the way, if you're struggling to keep up on your fast, you know, maybe you gave up food or Netflix or something, maybe consider giving up hiding for the rest of Lent. What would it mean for our lives and for the lives of those in our family or in our community, our neighborhood, our workplace, if we would give up hiding and let ourselves be found by the grace of God each and every day? Wherever you are, if you're hiding out, you're covering up, the good news is that just as God comes looking in the garden for Adam and Eve, God comes looking for us in Jesus Christ. I mean, as the Apostle Paul puts it, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the next line is one of the most beautiful lines in all of the New Testament. Just not counting their sins against them. Not holding it against them. Not holding it against us. In other words, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not shaming them for their sinfulness. The center of the gospel is that God has come looking for us. What would it mean for you this Lent to quit hiding to give it up, to let yourself be found by the grace of God who continues to call out to us over and over again. Where are you? I miss you. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we're all in this together. And though we all have shame, we all have some voice in our head telling us that who we are is not enough who we are is somehow unworthy to be in relationship with you and with others. You come to us again and again. We pray that you and your love would find us, that you would call to us, that you would call us out of our shame, that we might dwell in community with you and with everyone else who you love. In your name we pray. Amen.